But then you're like, well, how do I get money to start my business? But your own house is a liability. The first loan that you should have should be like a duplex or a quadruplex. I've already made my $50,000 back in two and a half years. They they don't know too much about the tax benefits. You will hear about the golden handcuffs from these large corporations. All they're doing is buying life insurance behind the scenes. So I've uh, turned a whole new leaf on this one. That's That's really interesting. What are the negatives of going this route? What are the things that people don't understand? Welcome back to the Growth and Gains podcast. we got a special episode coming out today. We have Rob Reed coming on the podcast. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. He's got experience in real estate, building his own business, portfolio management, life insurance, annuities, and he's a busy guy. Father of four, by the way, including me, which is why we have Monty today doing most of the interviewing and asking most of the questions, especially since Monty's pretty skeptical about life insurance, doesn't think it's a real thing, kind of thinks it's a scam. And I told him to give it to Rob, really go on, drill him on that, make sure you get down to the bottom of it. And I think it went really well. We also had one of the Discord members sneak into the podcast because I accidentally shared the link publicly. And hey, sometimes that happens, but he was cool. So we let him stay for the whole podcast. So hey, Brandon, I'm glad you got to have some fun, ask some questions and listen into the whole podcast. So if you see me post a link publicly, I guess just go ahead and jump in. That's the precedent we've now set. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. It's going to be a lot of fun. Remember, we got two coming out this week because we got Doomberg coming on later this week. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be a ton of fun. So make sure you're subscribed, follow the channel, follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts as well. Yeah, so I do uh, financial planning um, for mostly kind of higher net worth folks that have some assets to move around. A um, couple different things. I help them figure out what their vision is, um, kind of put strategies in place to help them achieve those that vision. And it goes along a lot of different fronts from I have some young people that want to retire early and retire early means before 59 and a half, 40 years old. I've got one lady right now that wants to retire by 40. So we're looking at investments at cash flow. So one of the biggest things that I look at is all of my financial planning is all about cash flow. It's either today's cash flow or cash flow after quote unquote retirement or when you can stop having to work and work as a as a want rather than a have. So that's one of my biggest focuses that I help a lot of people do is just figuring out um, what their vision looks like, helping them put together a strategy, whatever um, investment um, portfolios that we do and some other out-of-the-box ideas that we work on as well. And then we help them implement those strategies to make sure that we can obtain their their goals. Yeah, so um, it sounds like a lot of it's figuring out how to essentially keep people afloat on, you know, their already earned income and make sure that they're sustainable throughout retirement without, you know, dipping too deep into their portfolio. Is that a kind of a fair assessment or? Well, you know, I mean, that's a good question on the dipping into their portfolio. You mean, most of the times when we start dipping into the portfolio, obviously that lessens the opportunity for us to earn interest or gains on those opportunities if we start, you know, deaccumulating assets in retirement. That's one of the biggest things. And define retirement as whatever you want, right? You can define retirement as I'm I want to stop working and I just want to have fun or I want a side gig or I want to choose what I do, right? And a lot of times we have to deaccumulate our assets so we're spending down, right? So that's one of the biggest things trying to figure out, okay, how do we turn those assets into cash? And that's 
the biggest challenge for anybody. Most advisors out there are really good at investing and maybe making a good rate of return on the front side, on the accumulation side, but they're really horrible on the deaccumulation because they go back to you and say, well, we've got this much money and I can give you this much, but in a down market, we shouldn't be taking funds out of that investment or else you know, the sequence of return risk comes up and it's like, you're going to run out of money in like 15 years, especially if you retire and it starts going down after that, right? So have the doom cycle going in on that. Plus, uh, you know, you run out of assets. I don't want to say you run out of assets under management, but you dwindle down yeah. in a cycle site, I'd imagine. Right. And then you have to adjust your lifestyle, you know, or you're like, well, I can't take that big trip to, to Europe because all of a sudden we lost 20% in our portfolio or 10% in our portfolio because the market's down. And if we take out another 40 to 60 grand just to go on vacation, that has major impacts long-term. So how old um, would you say like the typical client in this kind of position would be? So you mentioned, you know, you're looking at clients that are looking to retire in their early mid forties. Like, is that the typical person that you would work with on managing cash flow, or are these guys that are like, you know, in their mid to late sixties, they're starting to yeah. slow down. They're looking to, you know, still work, but wind down their hours a little bit and spend some more yeah. time golfing or with the family. Right. So it's kind of both. A lot of times I get those young people that are like, look, I'm just, I want to re I want to retire, right. Just end my nine to five and do something different in my forties. Um, that's probably 15% of my clientele is that are my young people under, I would say under 50, um, about 15, maybe 20% of my clientele that were actively looking at opportunities to build cash flow outside of their nine to five job. And then the rest of my clients kind of are my traditional type clients that are over 50 that are kind of like what you said, winding down their work, like their work um, part of things. And they're really making a lot more money now. So that we're investing a lot more to catch up. So that that retirement horizon might be, you know, five, 10, 15 years out, depending on how much cash they've actually invested or saved up so far. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, this kind of speaks to, I don't know if it speaks much to Josh. I'd imagine him, you know, being the entrepreneurial person mm -hmm. and starting his own business and me looking to start my own business. That we're looking to manage cash flow, make sure. You know, our client book is well, uh, well greased and boiled, but at the same time, you know, how do we how do we make sure that our budgets stay afloat to where we can still have fun, but also stay physically responsible to where we're not, you know, dipping too much down to where mm -hmm. we're, uh, you know, going into debt or something like that. True. So there's two aspects to look at, especially on the entrepreneur side, when you're trying to look at starting a business in that infancy stages is what are we really trying to do, right? So when we look at the investment side, most people that are in their 20s and 30s, where do they usually invest at? They usually invest in qualified funds, a Roth or an IRA or a 401k. And it's like, okay, I can't touch any of those funds to reinvest back into my business because there's penalties associated with that. So I look at, well, how do we build up a, a private reserve of assets outside of that confined investment plan somewhere else that we can tap into and leverage? So when I think of debt, right, 
I look at debt in two opportunities. There's a lifestyle debt and a debt that you can make money back from, right? So lifestyle debt is, hey, I want the big fancy car. I want the big fancy house. And I spend all of my monthly spend to look good, right? And it's like, well, you shouldn't be doing that because that's debt for the wrong reasons, right? If you really want to build wealth, yeah, you might still need a home loan, but do it in reason, you know? I look at, you know, you should only buy a house that's maybe, you know, three times what your annual earnings is. Like if you earn a hundred grand, maybe you should only buy a $300,000 house. That's it, right? If you buy a car, buy it for about 20% of what you make per year, right? That's, that's like, I, that's what I look at, at that part of it. Um, that's lifestyle debt is horrible, right? But other debt, when we look at, well, I want to invest in my business, well, that's great. Well, what rate of return are we paying? What interest rate are we paying on that debt? And then what do we expect to get out of it? I know if I invest in myself, if I go to the bank and say, yeah, I need a hundred grand because I'm going to invest in my business. We'll have to have a plan of saying, what am I going to do with that money? Right. Am I going to do it? Spend it on marketing, people, um, product, whatever that is. Right. And what's my rate of return I'm going to get on that? And how long is it going to take to get money back? Now that might be good debt because I know if I'm on the hook for that personally, I'm going to be like, nope, balls to the walls. I'm going after it, right? I'm going to make that $100,000 back. It might cost me a little bit of interest, but if I can make 15, 20, 30% rate of return because I'm going to do the work and I'm going to be aggressive at doing that, then that's fine, right? Um, Absolutely. But the problem is, is accessibility. Who's going to loan you $100,000 on a new business, right? You can go to the SBA, but you have to, you know, it's gonna be a high interest rate. They're gonna throw you all kinds of loops, everything like that. Um, but then you're like, well, how do I get money to start my business? And that's what a lot of people do. So in my world, what do people do when they start a new business? What investment do they tap and drain in their 30s or 40s to start a new business? They tap their 401k, right? Yeah. I mean, that's I hear that all the time. Well, I drained. My 401k, well, what happened? Well, I needed money and the bank couldn't give me money when I start this business. So I drained $100,000 out of my 401k. That well, takes a pretty monster penalty, right? Well, like 10% plus you're paying taxes on it, right? So you're just getting waxed to take out a loan on your 401k. Right. Well, not a loan, but like distributing it, right? A distribution. You can, mm -hmm. if you're not working at that place, you can't get a loan. But even if you get a loan, you can only get up to fifty thousand dollars, and you're you know set on a five year amortization schedule to pay it back. So, depending on what that looks like, it's well, is that the best option to put your money if you have plans on building a business later on? And sometimes none of us feel like we're going to build a business in five or ten or fifteen years, but if we have a vision of saying, ah, you know what, I've always wanted to be an entrepreneur. I'm going to work my nine to five now, but at some point in time, I want to build and grow a business myself. Then what are we doing to, what's the strategy behind that vision to say, well, we can't put it all in this stupid investment. We should probably do something else that we have, that we have access to or leverage against. Oh, no, absolutely. And, you know, that's a, that's actually an interesting conversation on, you know, business loans and, you know, specifically an example I have, our friends that 
you know, they own a couple duplexes or they own a duplex and they're looking to buy a house where they rent one of the floors, live on the other floor. And the question comes down to, you know, do I sell the duplex to buy the house or what do I do? And my first thought is, you know, one example would be their one tenant pays the mortgage and a couple bucks on top. So why not rent out uh, both units, take the cash flow and, you know, potentially buy the house. You might not have the cash up front or have that nice uh, bubble of cash from selling the duplex, but at least you'd have the recurring income from owning the duplex and renting it out. I mean, how would you approach something like that? Yeah. So that's exactly what I would, I would recommend to, you know, it has to be the right person, right? Well, I own it. We'll take your example. I own a duplex. I want to go buy a house. Well, once you sell that duplex, that cash flow has been lost. Yeah, you'll take the equity appreciation and put that into your own house, but your own house is a liability, right? You're now required to fix everything that breaks. Um, it costs money to maintain that property. So you're actually losing money, right? So what we try to do is help people, well, let's go take that duplex, rent the other second part of it out, take that, you know, depending on where you're at, that cat, that extra profit cash flow, and that would help pay for part of the mortgage on the house that we buy for ourselves. And that's so there's some benefits. Really, oh yeah, and I mean, and that's what we're trying to do. Everything that we buy for ourselves, so we go back to the lifestyle piece of it. Like I want to go buy a big fancy car. Well, I can't go buy the big fancy car until I have an asset that's providing me cash flow to pay for it, so that I don't have to transfer my time or hours. For dollars, my assets are already doing that for me, right? So it sounds pretty strategic, though. So you're not just saying, you know, this is what you make and this is what you can buy, but it's more so let's figure out how to maximize your income with the assets you have and figure out how to build your lifestyle around it. Correct. And that's the key a lot of young people forget, and they get into the lifestyle aspects instead of saying, well, if you're renting right now, Let's not go buy a house for ourselves. Let's go buy a duplex or a quadplex or even a an Airbnb so that that house pays for our rent, right? And then all of a sudden that's you know, whatever your rent is, if that's if it's covering all of that, that's less expense or cash flow going out of your po pocket from your nine to five. So that sounds like a pretty reasonable uh, way to approach yeah. it to me. Yeah. Well, and that's, I mean, a lot of people don't think about it. And even like in your guys' world on the, the traditional investment side, and that's what I call it is traditional investments, is we can't put money into the market and get immediate consistent cash flow from it unless it's like in a dividend stock, right? Yeah, I was about to say us, that's our equivalent. Yeah, that's your equivalent, but it's very little, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then you're taking, you can't reinvest that equity back into it, where if you look at real estate, you're like, well, I never took any money out of it. I'm taking the money out of it, but it's not, it's still the equity appreciation side of it. You know, when a company pays the dividend, the stock price goes down based on what they were paid out, right? Well, when my duplex pays me cash flow profit, the value doesn't go down. It just continues notching up over and over unless in a down housing market, but even a down housing market, I don't care because the rent is still the same, if not more.
and it's keeping up with inflation usually. Absolutely. So right. there's some benefits. It sounds like, you know, kind of going on those two last topics, mm-hmm. being able to take out some leverage and buying, you know, a rental property, taking the cash flow to pay back that debt and, you know, building your equity that way instead of paying all cash up front. And then, because most people I'd imagine don't have, you know, that much cash on hand to be able to buy a full on property. So taking out that loan is just maximizing their cash flow at that point mm-hmm. or something, something of that sort. Yeah. And, and that, and like the first loan that you should have should be like a duplex or a quadplex, right? Perhaps mm-hmm. that's what I feel. Now, a lot of people are like, no, I want my own place. And it's like, whatever, you have your own place. Just go rent something, right? But you want to use that first loan to buy something that cash flows so that will pay for your place and the other place, right? And start building equity somewhere. And then you can tap into that equity later on to go buy something else, right? And redo the whole thing. So I just have one client. They took equity out of their primary home about a year and a half ago, bought an Airbnb with it paid cash, right? They've been making cash flow from it. And this year they went out and bought two more properties, two more Airbnb properties by using the cash flow that they've gotten for the last year as their down payment to use to go buy the other two. And so no money is out of their pocket. Yeah, it's debt. It's debt on their balance sheet, right? But it's really not because someone else is paying that debt. You know, their guests are paying that debt they aren't paying it. They're just not lifestyle debt. So that's where I look at two different aspects to it. Plus, I mean, they can sell those all three of those properties and make probably a 15% return just based on how much equity appreciation they've had. Not even the cash flow that they've taken from it because of the real estate market. Yeah. And, you know, just talking to, you know, some, I guess, less financially sophisticated people about taking out debt to buy property that seems to be such a big stigma for some people just because, mm-hmm. you know, their view is they don't own it. The bank owns it. And essentially they're at the whims of the bank. So how, how do you approach a customer or client that might be skeptical on taking out a loan for, you know, a business or a property or something like that? Yeah. Well, they just have to understand the numbers behind it, right? They have to understand, okay, if I, if I buy this property, what are the expenses that I'm going to incur? What's the cash on cash rate of return that I expect based on occupancy and my rent that I'm charging? And that's what it all, I don't care if the bank owns it. That's fine. Let's let's just call it the bank owns it, right? Well, guess what? If I'm making $1,000 of cash flow on that, on something that the bank owns, that I have zero, lo, little to no money invested into it, I'm totally fine with that. Even if I invest, if I buy a property for half a million and I put 10% down, 50 grand, if that profits me every month, maybe $1,500 in the low end, that's $18,000 a year. I've already made my $50,000 back in two and a half years, right? Plus that property has gone up, right? So if it goes up over that two, three years, right? Two and a half years. And I sell it for five seventy five. Now I'm taking seventy five thousand dollars on top of that. I not only got my fifty grand back, but I got twenty five thousand plus. I got my cash flow for the last two and a half years. Like in the traditional world, I can't get that in, in the stock market now, right? Without depleting assets. 
So there's some benefit to it. You not only get the long-term gains on property value, but you also get the cash flow between uh, now and then. So that's right. that's really cool to think about, you know. And and the way I think of it, you know, let's uh, use a simple example. You know, you short the ten-year treasury, you go long on the three-month treasury. Mm-hmm. There's a I haven't checked in a couple of days, but what about a one and a half percent differentiation? So, you know, if you uh, take a loan out to short the ten-year and you pay or you buy the three month, you make uh, essentially one and a half percent return on it for free. Let the arbitrage so, on it. Yeah, exactly. So thinking of it kind of in terms like that, is that how you would look at, you know, taking out a loan to buy a property? You know, let's use simple terms. Let's say you pay 5% interest on the loan and the property yields something like 7%. You take that 2% difference that's your profit over time and, you know, net of the property value when you sell it just for the intermittent cash flow. That's how you look at it. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, we would look at it that same way. So I like a software program that I can put all these numbers into and figure out what all of the percentages and rates of return are over the long term. Say if we hold the property for five, 10, 20 years, it gives us the total profit based on the occupancy or the rental rates that we're doing with inflation, as well as the cost, because we have maintenance, we have insurance, taxes, all those other pieces associated. It takes all those expenses into it. And that's what we're really trying to do. We're just trying to say, how can I make a positive cash flow return on this today? With Take money out of it without impacting the asset, right? Because that home, even though I'm getting money out of that house in the way of cash flow from that renter or whatever it is, that doesn't stop the appreciation that's having on that property. That appreciation will always happen over time. And in fact, like if you look at um, the the ultra wealthy, so people that have usually 10, 15 million dollars or more of total assets, around 30 to 40 percent of their assets are in real estate. That's a huge amount. Yeah. Well, they I mean, they don't have a lot in like the stocks. They have it in real estate because it provides cash flow and tax incentives to it. Right. But also it has, um, but they also have like private equity investments, those types of investments as well to get a higher rate of return, right? They buy real estate for the cash flow and tax uh, benefits that they have associated. So let's with talk it. about let's talk about that for a couple minutes because that's that's something that I don't do too much of, and I'm sure a lot of people that you know that listen to our podcast that do individual investments, let's say in the equity market, they, mm-hmm. they don't know too much about the tax benefits. You know, can you kind of discern a little bit more on that topic? Yeah. Well, so if you've got a piece of real estate, so you put it under like an, another LLC, right. And they have costs associated with that. So even, even with a couple clients that have cash flow from those properties, well, since it's an investment property and I'm actively managing it, right. So I have a part in the management side of it. I can deduct all of those as all of those expenses. Plus there's depreciation on real estate that you can take under a business. You can't take it under your personal, right? Um, so sometimes, even if we just break even, right, on expenses versus cash flow in, all of a sudden we can, you know, deduct the depreciation on that property over like 27 and a half years. And all of a sudden we just made ta- cat tax-free revenue of whatever that depreciation is that converts over to our 1040 that takes it off of our W-2 income. 
So it helps reduce some of our W-2 income or other active uh, profits. So like in the trading business, right? You guys are trading. At the end of the year, what happens? If you had a good year and you profited, right? You're going to pay taxes on it, right? Short-term capital gains, ordinary yeah. income tax. Slap in the face. Well, yeah, other <laughs> active investments that are taking a loss, all of a sudden you can say, oh, well, instead of that $100,000 gain, I only made you know 50 or whatever it is because I had other active losses that offset those pieces of the puzzle. Absolutely. So let's yeah. segue into the other part of uh, financial planning, and that would be yeah. uh, the life insurance side. Yeah. So I've always been skeptical on life insurance. So out of college, a lot of the places that recruited out of the University yeah. of Houston were advisory practices. And, you know, I'd go through the interview process. They'd sit me down in their office. They talk to me about their sales pitch and they go through the sob story of, you know, I had a family member, they felt ill. Luckily they had life insurance. They died. Uh, my mom got this whatever payout and family was made whole again. Right. Net of emotional damage. But, <laughs> right. but, you know, just, just like talking to them, I never really had that kind of story to, to sell. You know, I am at the time I was a young single guy in my early twenties you know, I didn't have a care in the world. I don't want to say I was a narcissist, but, you know, I didn't have multi-generational -gener wealth to worry about. You know, right. it's just kind of me on my own, figuring out how to go through life, make a couple bucks while I do it, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So how would you, how do you, you know, explain to me the benefits of having a life insurance policy? Yeah, so there's different types of life insurance. So there's there's the true like breed of life insurance that is exactly what you just said. Hey, if you someone that's financially supporting somebody else dies, there's a payout that will help them continue their lifestyle even when they're not there, right? And that's like term life insurance. You get the biggest bang for your buck. You pay so little for a huge death benefit, right? There's only one benefit. If you die, other people get to party, right? Sounds pretty get, dismal. Well, well, that's what it is, right? <laughs> but it's, I call that selfless life insurance because it's not for yourself, right? There's no benefit to you, the purchaser of that life insurance. It's all for somebody else. And hopefully it's other people that you love, you know, uh, spouse, kids, whatever it is, charity, um, whatever that is, it just goes to them to help them be where they want to be at that time, right? Mm -hmm. I think- and with that part of it, you have to look into the future, right? right? So you have to be like, well, where am I going to be at maybe five years? Do, why, do I have a chance of getting married or having a spouse in the next five years? If you don't, you probably don't need term life insurance, right? You're just out there doing your thing, right? You might need, now, if I've got some loans, maybe I've got a car or a house, and I'm like, well, I want to have some money so that, you know, my family can sell that property and not do a fire sale because they don't want to take over the payment to help offset some of the costs until they can sell it, right? 50,000, 100,000, whatever it is. But if you're like, nope, I've look, I, I have a, I have a future spouse that I'm looking at. I'm looking at getting married here or asking him or her in the next few years. Then it's like, I want to start protecting that part of it. I'm going to go buy a term insurance policy because I know what's on the horizon. I'm going to have people that are going to need me if something happens to me. Right. So go buy it. And I say, you know, 
I say 20 times your annual income. That's what you should have. It might seem like a lot, right? But we all plan to make a lot of money in this world, right? Well, we still want to provide for our family the same as if we made that same money over the next 20 years, right? Or 30 years or whatever it is. And that's the whole idea, kind of going back to your financial planning discussion to where, you know, you're, you're, you're expecting cash flow. And now that that cash flow is ripped out, that's going to be the, um, I guess, terminal cash flow, yeah. what you're going to be surviving on for the next 10, 20, whatever years, correct? Right. Yeah. Okay. And so, so even if like you have kids, like obviously we have kids, but when we have younger kids, right. And, you know, some people, it's funny, the stories that I get, well, she's just going to go marry someone else. I'm like, do you want her to choose that person because they actually love them? Or do you want them to have to choose them because they, they will financially support her and the kids that's the way want... my dad told me about it to where yeah, um, like... what was it i don't want my my uh widowed wife to be someone's sugar mama yeah <laughs> well not, not not sugar mama but in the way of like a guy if there's not life insurance all of a sudden she would have to go find another guy to make the same money and he might not treat your kids the same way because he's making all the money and they're just like eating off of it right i want her to be in control and be like, no, I've got this money. I don't have to go pick somebody else for the money. I can pick them because I care about them. And guess what? If they don't treat my kids right, they're out. Because I want that life insurance money is supposed to take care of my kids, right? And keep the same standard living, all the dreams that I ever hoped for them to do, everything, right? That's like the passion piece behind it, right? And there are some people that just don't care, right? They're like, well, whatever, she can go find someone else, right? But that's like the foundation. I mean, that's life insurance, right? It's supposed to be there for other people. And then there's the second piece is, you know, a lot of companies come out to colleges and they're trying to recruit everybody to do the cash value life insurance, right? You know, building up cash value. And there's a lot of companies that do it. There's a lot of different contracts out there, but you really have to know why it is I'm investing into that contract, right? There's a lot of great benefits to it. And most times that's the selfish part of life insurance. I don't need the death benefit. I, in fact, it's a, it's the 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 wrapper of the candy has life insurance on it, but I don't even want the life insurance piece because I don't need the death benefit. I want all the benefits that that contract has for me inside of it, right? So it's almost an annuity at that point. Well, no, it works different than an annuity. So in the same scale of a, so we'll go back to the real estate. So I'll, I'll assigned real estate and cash value life insurance under the same kind of characteristics to where I go and buy a life insurance contract and I put a ton of money in there and I'm paying for the cost of insurance, but I'm putting all the way up to the, to the amount that the IRS tells me to put money into because there's a limit, right? And getting the lowest amount of death benefit so that my costs are super low, right? And then I build that up for some time. Now I have access to that capital in time through loans, right? So I don't need to stop it. So, you know, and that's the difference between investing in equities versus life insurance. If I needed assets out of my equities, I would either have to do a margin, margin call, have to do a margin loan off of it, or I have to sell those equities, right? And then all of a sudden you've been there, you guys have all been there. Well, I sold my equities. I got out of that position. All of a sudden the stock just continued to go up and I missed out all the opportunity that could have been, right? Well, life the insurance, best of us. Yeah, all of everybody, right? You're like, why did I 
get out so early, right? So with life insurance, you know, it's usually invested in, you can put it in variable, you can put it in index, whatever it might be, but you can borrow against it with no, I mean, you could just say, hey, I've got $100,000 in there. I need $80,000. Can you wire it to my bank in like four days? Great. We'll wire it to you. Well, guess what? We're going to put that $80,000 into a separate account that's earning 4%. And we're going to, the insurance company is going to charge you 4% interest on the money you just borrowed from yourself because you didn't actually take it out of the market. It's still sitting there in the same account. You get your statement. There's still a hundred grand in there. It's just saying, hey, $80,000 of it is loaned or collateralized against the value. So it's a net so zero really, loan. So you're not really taking it out of the policy per se. Right. But so you still receive the cash from the bank, but there's a loan being paid to the, I guess, insurance group that's mm -hmm. managing the portfolio. You get the cash, the bank holds the loan. They're net net on interest payments. Correct. So it's almost like an interest-free loan using that uh, vehicle. Correct. And it never stops compounding right now. Some people will say, so a lot of my real estate investors will say, hey, I needed capital to go buy a property for a down payment and they'll take it out of there. And then all of a sudden the second side of it, they're like, well, I'm going to pay it back, right? I'm going to have my investment company or my investment portfolio pay that back through whatever I invested into. I wouldn't say go take a loan to go buy a car, right? To go buy the souped up car, go buy something that's going to provide cash flow so that you can put money, that money back into there. And you can amortize it however you want. You can say, I don't want to pay it at all. I want to do an interest only payment one time a year. I pay that 4% interest at the end of the year. And that 4% doesn't keep on accumulating in that account. It stops that part of it, but it's in a 4% account that's continued to compound on itself every year, right? So you don't interrupt that kind of that in investment side of it. And then you put it back in there and then you do it all over again. I have a lot of people that will put their money back in there, the $80,000 back in there. And a month later, like I need it again. So it's always money in motion, or we call it the velocity of money, right? If we continue to have that money in motion, because I can take that money out and go invest it somewhere. And if I can earn 15% somewhere, great. I earn 15%. I shove it back in there. I never stop comp this compounding effect that I had going on the contract to begin with. So I might be making another 4% on that account, plus the 15% I made on the outside of it. But it's really just like a life insurance contract in that moment is just a parking place for money. It's not a lot of these other people on TikTok and all these other places are like, oh, well, put all this money in there and you're going to get X amount of money in 30 years. That's great. It will do that, right? But that's on an illustration that they're selling at like 7.5%. Like that's probably not appropriate because the market's going to go up and down. You might get a 0%. You might get a 10%, right? based on that return but it's really for you know for someone like in the markets right so if you're in the markets and you're like oh you know what this opportunity came up i got some good news but i need like 40 grand to go invest in the stock and i don't want to sell out on any of my other positions so what you do is you tap into the life contract you borrow from that and you go like shove all that money in there and you do that and you're like oh great i just made a bunch of money and i take it back out and I put it back in there right so if you continually do that over and over again, then you're not messing up your regular portfolio that you're looking at. You're tapping into a loan from someone else. You're just tapping into other investments, a margin type of an account with your life insurance contract. So it sounds like this 
uh, contract, this vehicle, it's kind of like it gives you that flexibility, you know, going back to the case of not being able to take out a hundred thousand dollar loan to start a business. It mm-hmm. kind of opens up that door to be able to have more flexibility with your capital to where, you know, if you want to start a new venture, you know, invest in something or whatever it may be, it gives you access to additional capital that you may not have access to otherwise. Correct. Yeah. So a lot of times companies will use this as an incentive um, point. So they'll buy life insurance on those contracts on their employees, right? So they'll be like, well, we're going to put a bonus into this contract. And it's kind of like the golden handcuffs, right? You will hear about the golden handcuffs from these large corporations. All they're doing is buying life insurance behind the scenes. Wow. Yeah. I was not aware of that. Yep. So they say, hey, if you work for us for 10 years, we're going to put $100,000 in this life insurance policy. At the end of 10 years, we're going to give you $80,000 a year for however many years. They can decide to take it out of the value of the life insurance or take it out of their their other investments that they have, depending on what's happening at that time. But a but it shows up on your balance sheet as a business or as your personal balance sheet. It shows up as an asset that's available to use on that side of it. So you always have to look at it in the way of just like all your other equity investments would be on your balance sheet. This is also on your balance sheet. But if you've got plans to open a business, instead of liquidating your current 401k or other stocks or equities, you can tap into this. You don't liquidate it. You tap into it and go get a loan from the life insurance and say, hey, collateralize that asset. I need X amount of dollars. All right. <laughs> yeah. And so I do it for a lot of um like higher net worth people when they can't invest into a Roth, right? Mm-hmm. Like they have no access to invest into a Roth because they make too much money. So we you're invest just cut off little, at that point. Yeah, you're cut off. You're like, there's no tax advantages where I can put it into life insurance after tax dollars into life insurance. I still have access to it um, to borrow against it if I have a business thing come up or a large capital purchase that I need to make. I mean, just think about it. Right now, interest rates, you know, you can go buy, say if you're buying a car and it's what, 7% interest on a car, you know, like, hey, I have the capital. I don't want to pay cash for it. I still want to borrow against it. Well, maybe I'll just use my life insurance. I'll go pay for it, right? And I'm having a net zero loan on my life insurance. Well, I'll just do that. I'll just borrow it from my life insurance, go pay it, and then amortize the schedule back into it, right? That makes sense to me. A lot of ways to do it if you needed that vehicle, but it's really should be for investment purposes, right? I'm leveraging that asset to make cash flow or a rate of return on some type of investment. So you've uh, you've completely turned a page for me on life insurance. You know, this is a avenue I was not aware of, one that was not discussed when uh, you know talking to these advisor practices. So I've uh, turned yeah. a whole new leaf on this one. That's yeah. that's really interesting. And the Josh, problem yep. is, oh, sorry. And Monty, and the problem is a lot of other firms, they sell it for the, the it's a commissionable product, right? Mm-hmm. So most of them don't know how to set these contracts up um, properly, and they don't know what to look for in the contracts that they, that they use. So you want to look for several different things like a net zero loan, right? I don't want to pay any interest on the loans that I'm taking out. I want it to be, 
I want to put into a 4% account. I want to be, I want to owe 4% interest. So it's a net zero, right? Um, I want there to be a option to where if I'm working a nine to five, so a lot of my, I have some executives that are on these types of plans where if they get disabled, the insurance company pays not just the cost of insurance, but whatever premium they're putting into it. So I've got one client, they're putting $80,000 a year into one. He's in his early fifties. He's a, a C-level executive. And if he gets disabled and can't work, the life insurance company continues putting $80,000 a year into it. Oh, so, so they just take pay. over. Yeah. So it just takes over and it just, it's, it's a self-completing investment, right? Or I can't say investment, self-completing contract, right? You can't do that with your 401k. You can't do that with anything else. That's the only one you can do it with. But it's just find the right person that knows what they're doing because 97% of the life insurance agents that are out there don't know how to set one of these up. And I would probably go maybe 98, 99%, right? There's probably a couple percent that do it wrong, right? They tell you they set it up right, but they have no idea what they're doing. So that's the key. Find the right advisor that knows what they're doing to walk you through these steps. Don't try to do it yourself. Find someone that's very knowledgeable like yourself that can, yeah. you know, help you all along the way. No missteps. Yeah. yeah. That's the biggest thing. That's good. That's your selling point right there. Well, so <laughs> if you look back on the um, on the real estate side, so I, I don't know if I've touched on this, you mentioned that, but so it's the same thing as buying a house, right? When you buy a house, and it goes up in value and you take a home equity loan credit, line of credit out of it and go invest somewhere, that doesn't stop the value of the house. Now, if you sell the house, what happens? You just get whatever's left over. It's the same on a life insurance contract. It continues to increase in, val in value even though you've taken money out of it. So you don't lose that value by taking the money out of it. It still retains the value, still grows. And yeah, it still grows inside the contract, right? That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, Josh, questions on that? Uh, no, that's why we were going to have you interview him because obviously I, I've, <laughs> I've heard a lot of this. <laughs> Many times. I've run dry. I've run <laughs> run dry questions. Brandon, did you have a question by chance on any of that? Are you here with us? I am. I am. I've not left you. Um, nope. I, I Obviously, I've heard this as well. I've I've talked with a few different financial advisors and I can not agree more that uh, you definitely have to write, have the right person set the stuff up for you because I've talked to quite a few people at high name institutions that don't really understand what life insurance is at all, or at least mm -hmm. they only know of term and they don't really understand the investment vehicle that it can be. So yeah, just because they have a fancy uh, name or a fancy title does not mean they really understand a whole lot on some of these mm -hmm. things. So you have to be yeah. very careful. Um, but that being said, you know, when, and whenever one talks about investments, a lot of times they like to sell it. And so when you sell something, it's all about the positives. What are the negatives of going this route? What are the things that people yeah. don't understand? And better yet, to kind of add to that is, who is this for? Because obviously this sort of investing, because it's what it is, it's really investing, isn't for everyone. So what is the True. profile of the person this fits the most and who does it not fit at all? Yeah, so this is a so when I look at this type of contract, um, it's a marriage, right? It's a long term thing, and we're looking at when you're young, it's like no, you've got to be able to put X amount in there every year. If you don't, there's going to be consequences to it, right? Um, so that's one of the things is like 
someone that has stable income that's not going to be up and down. Um, that's like, hey, if we're going to put, you know, $80,000 a year in there, I need to know that you have $80,000 a year to put in there. Because if that one year that you don't have 80 grand to put in there, it messes the contract up, right? So it's a commitment. So a lot of times on the life insurance piece, now there are usually a lot of fees up front with life insurance on the front end, right? There's obviously cost of insurance, there's administrative fees. That eats away at a little bit of the cost in there. But when you look at the fees, the internal rate of return and the, the fees associated with the contract with what you're putting in there, at about year 25, it drops down in the right contract, it drops down to about one to one and a half percent in annualized fees over that 25 year period, which is about the same you'll pay like on an assets under management fee for like a, a money manager to, to do that, right? But that's over a longer term piece of it. These contracts are not meant to be canceled early um, as long as they're set up appropriately. Um, so that's the probably the, the couple of downsides, Brandon, is you know, you have to be committed to putting, assigning 80,000, whatever that number is each and every year to it and holding that contract for the long term, right? And then making sure that when we start to take those funds out of it, it's set up properly so that we're not going to, because what will happen in some cases, if you get like a variable contract that's invested in the market, just like with your, you know, margin call, right? If, the value goes down and you've got loan money out of there, you're going to get a margin call and put money back in there, right? Um, there's a lot more fees inside of those variable products, obviously, but if the policy cancels out and you've taken a ton of capital out of there in the way of loans, you could be hit with a taxable gain. So if you put $80,000 in there for the next 10 years, that's $800,000. And at later on, you've taken out two to $3 million, and all of a sudden that policy cancels before you die. Now it's an investment and you owe capital gains tax on all of the gains. So you want to make sure that it lasts until you die. Um, so a lot of the contracts will have overloan protection riders on there. So if you're taking that capital out, it, they'll say, look, you can't take any more money out. You've capped it out. If we take any more money out, you're going to get a hit with a huge capital gains. So they'll say, hey, look, we'll reduce the death benefit. We'll do whatever. Just keep the policy going until you die because you've already taken out way too much money. Um, and that's just bad planning on the advisor side when they're putting when they're distributing those assets outside of that contract. So there are some negatives to it. But it's usually based on how the contract set up the commitment level that the invest the, the person has into it. Um, and then obviously the follow-up process. This is not a once and done type of thing. It's we're reviewing it every 12, 18 months, making sure that we're doing the right things. Good questions, so, Brandon. So if you get a bad person though, they can really set you up for a horrible experience and a lot of pain and trouble and yep. they are not doing it correctly. Yeah. And this one, so this one client that I just worked with, he had another company and he was set up with these other contracts about 13 years ago and they set him up and he was putting a lot of money into it. And then the advisor kept on changing because he was at one of those companies that it's just rotation in and out the door. Right. And no one knew what was going on. And he was like, I don't even know if I have a person to talk to. So he reduced the funding to it over the last 10 years. And it's like, okay, well, you've got way too much life insurance compared to what you're putting into it. 
So, and the advisor would come back out and say, oh, you need to increase the death benefit, increase death benefit. And you just increase your monthly premium by this month. Well, it's just a commission grab at that time because every time you increase the death benefit, it's just more commission for the advisor. It's like, no, you want the lowest amount of death benefit and the highest premium possible. And that cuts the commission down to the advisor drastically. Right? So, it, when I was insurance, I, I there I met lots of people who are all just about getting the sale, getting the commission, and yep. they didn't understand anything. They didn't even fully understand whole life. It was yeah, it was gross how negligent they were in their understanding yep. of those products. Yeah, and, but yeah, I mean that's and the target client is, you know, I have some clients that are in their early twenties that they're like, no, I want to get into real estate, so I need access to capital. I'm like, great, this is probably a way to do it, but we have to have commitment levels on what we're putting in there. And then I've got older clients that were really setting up, you know, pop cash flow and tax advantage accounts for retirement. But they have to, you know, most clients are going to be, you know, they have to put in about 10 grand a year into it to make anything really happen out of it later on. Now, if they're young, like in their 20s, like 10 grand a year is perfect. Um, sometimes like I've got one other client that we're trying to they're in highly invested into one stock right now because um, they had employee stock option pr purchase and they're retired and a third of their whole entire portfolio is in this one stock and they're, and it's a good stock, but I'm like, okay, that's a little too much risk in that portfolio to have a third of your assets just in one stock. Right? So we're taking money out every year to fund life insurance, put it in more of a tax advantage shelter. That'll provide cash flow later on to them in retirement. So there's different, and that's where I come in with like, okay, what's your vision? And okay, based on that, what are we working with? And then putting together strategies to help achieve that vision, whatever that may look like. Um, it's not for everybody. Um, you have to know what you're investing in and why you're doing it. If you don't know the why behind it, don't do it. That flies into the market. <laughs> yeah 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 well, well even like you know everybody tells me like we talked about real estate at the beginning and it's like everybody's scared to invest in real estate because they don't understand it and i'm like okay so tell me about the market how does the market work how does it go up and down and they're like well i don't know i'm like okay don't tell me that you understand the market and you don't understand real estate like you don't understand the market in fact we understand real estate better than we understand the market because most people own a house or know something about the real estate market. Yeah. No, that's probably, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. That's really accurate. Well, I know you got limited time. We're getting late. It's almost 420 now, but uh, yes. thanks everyone for switching up your schedules or yeah. are, are hopping in to a pleasant surprise, <laughs> Brandon. Um, <laughs> and uh thanks for taking some time away from drinking monty i hope you uh, go enjoy your yeah. beer and, and rob you got a soccer game so yeah we'll go ahead and end the call everyone thanks for showing up uh, appreciate it i'm gonna edit this up have it out later tonight uh and thanks for your time